Amen. Can you hear me okay? Good, great. Welcome here this morning. My name is Pastor James. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Uh, we're starting a new series for the summer. As we prepare for our new lead pastor, Terry Norris, to come, we're starting a new series that's going to go the entire summer. It's going to be filled with guests, guest preachers and speakers, some of them you've already um, met in the past. But we're going to talk about the stories of Jesus this summer. And there's two main things that we hope you'll take from the series as a whole. We want you to grow in your faith and become, hopefully, as you learn more, become more like Jesus. And the second thing is we want you to better understand what it means to live as his follower in what we call the kingdom of God. Let me pray as we get started. Father in heaven, um, I'm still excited from seeing day camp and seeing that next generation raised up I think in some ways, Father, we long for a faith that is buoyant and vibrant and full of life. And Father, as we start this series and as we continue this series, that's my prayer for myself and for the rest of us, that we will be a generation of people, a church of people that will know what it means to step into new life, to step into our identity as a follower of Jesus, and to live well in the kingdom of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start um, this morning by asking you just a simple question. When is the last time that you heard a really, really good story? Think about that for a sec. When's the last time you heard a really good story? Something that really grabbed your attention and kind of drew you in. When our kids were young, Caroline and I used to do a lot of driving in the summers, and one of the things I did to pass the time with the kids is I would tell them stories along the way. And my stories always featured the same main character. His name was Billy McDonald. And Billy McDonald was just the name of a character I made up because where I grew up, there were a ton of McDonald's. So I just made up a common Nova Scotia name and Billy's stories were always filled with adventure. There was a time that Billy was followed by a mysterious black dog. Or there was a time when Billy found and went into an old abandoned house. Or there was another time when late at night on his window, Billy heard a knock. And these stories would go on and on. And I mean, sometimes they'd go on for over an hour. The kids would absolutely love them. Um, when the, there were moments, too, when they got so intense. You can imagine our kids are young and these stories are building in drama. And I sense sometimes that I just better settle it down a bit. And I would always have this sort of, for, to relieve the tension, I'd have this comic distraction, the wolf in the poopy diaper. And I would say to the kids when it got really intense, and then I saw him lurking in the bushes. It was the wolf in a poopy diaper. And the kids, the kids would get upset and laugh and then say, Dad, tell us another story about Billy McDonald. And I'd be exhausted from these stories because I'm making them up randomly in my head. But those stories, they, stories in general, they have a powerful impact on us. That's one thing we'll find out the more we live. A good story really pulls you into the plot. It draws you in. You feel like you're a part of the story. Theologian Eugene Peterson uh, says that stories are like invitations. He calls them acts of verbal hospitality. Think of that acts of verbal hospitality. And it's true, a good story has that effect on you. It invites you in and you kind of vicariously start to participate in the story. You can, in a real sense, just enter into the story. That's the way um, 
we're wired, I think, as people. Psychologists have told us, actually, within us as humans, there's a narrative structure built into us. Storytelling forms deep, deep connections with who we are, and it forms deep connections with others, and it gives us meaning to the world around us. Jesus was a master storyteller. Uh, it's something he was known for. That was at the very core of his teaching. It was estimated that more than one-third of his teaching that's recorded in the Gospels is stories. And it was done all through a certain kind of story, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, called a parable. But when, here's a passage from the Gospels in Matthew 13, 34. Here's what it says. Jesus used stories when he spoke to the people. In fact, he did not tell them anything without using stories. Isn't that interesting? He was a storyteller, primarily a storyteller. Now, if you measure success by impact alone, Jesus, I think, is hands down the consummate storyteller. Uh, author John Ortberg wrote this, if a picture's worth a thousand words, Jesus spoke volumes through his stories. Jesus told colorful, unforgettable, compelling, culturally relevant stories. For 2,000 years, these stories have stretched the greatest minds in the world and fed the simplest ones. They have pierced the hardest hearts and shaped the greatest souls that have walked the face of the earth. Stories that Jesus told were often everyday stories. They were stories about ordinary things like birds and cows and farmers and weeds and sheep. And if we get a little more specific, the story he loved to tell really was the parable. Parables were short stories. They were really punchy stories. They often had an element of surprise in them. And they contained a chance usually for people to begin to question a decision that they should make. The word parable comes from two words. First half of it comes from the second part of the word balo, Greek word for to throw, so parabolo. And the first part comes from the, the beginning, para, which means alongside of. So the word conveys this meaning, to throw something alongside of, to throw something alongside of. I think of it this way. Jesus took ordinary, everyday things, just things that you see every day, and he threw alongside of them things that would help us understand a deeper truth. The most common thing he threw into the mix was truth about the kingdom of God. In fact, and this is very important for this series, there were two main things that Jesus did in his parables. He first taught about the kingdom of God. That was the first thing. And the second thing is he, was invited, he invited people to be part of the kingdom of God. Over and over and over again, if you look at it, when you read his stories, he's either teaching about the kingdom of God or he's inviting people in to the kingdom of God. And because of that, um, I want to I just camp out. Kingdom of God is not a word that we frequently understand or use today. When's the last time you used the phrase kingdom of God outside of a religious context? We just don't really use it today. Kingdom um, is something that Jesus' followers and people around him, they would have understood to some degree what kingdom of God meant. But I want to talk about it just for a moment because there's something really essential about that phrase that we have to get. The way Jesus uses the word kingdom is not for a place. That's absolutely essential. He's not talking about a geographical location. He's not talking about kingdom like the kingdom of England or the kingdom, kingdom of Egypt. He's not talking about that at all, and that's often what people get confused about. It did not describe a territory. 
or a region. For Jesus, and this is absolutely key when you read the New Testament, when you're reading the Gospels in particular, when you're reading what Jesus has said, kingdom represents the reign or the rule of God. It's God's reign over something. Think of it as the power a king had over his kingdom instead of thinking of an area. It's the part that the king has control of, the part of his life. It's God's rule in the kingdom of God. The rule of God, the parts of life over which God has control. Now, you might say, well, in a very real sense, God rules over all creation, right? Except in the scriptures, we find that the world from the beginning is broken in some way. A good and perfect world fell. So scriptures describe a fallen world. And as a result of the fall, what we find is that God is set out to restore or to repair that brokenness. And so for a time, we're told all through scripture, the prince of this world, Satan or the devil, has been permitted to roam and have limited influence in what we call the kingdom of the world. So God rules over the kingdom of God. Limited control has been given to Satan to frustrate and to um, uh, irritate and to try to cause um, God's plans to be uh, disturbed. But he doesn't have ultimate control. That's really important to try to get that balance. The, German, the great German theologian Oscar Kuhlman had this great analogy. He put it this way. Satan, he said, is like a snarling dog at the end of a leash. He can't go any farther than God will allow him. He'll run to the end of that leash and just get yanked back. But in his limited distance, and his limited authority, he tries to disrupt and destroy. His ultimate power has been broken, so we know the end of the story. We know we can trust that God will be victorious, but for now, Satan drags his chain wherever he goes. That's the kingdom of the world. Years ago, my brother Mike and I were traveling in Holland. We're both, my mom and dad are both Dutch, so we went over to see our relatives. And we went to one relative's house, and they had a big guard dog. I don't know if any of you have been to Holland, but it's not an unusual thing for people to have big dogs on leashes guarding their property or a big part of their property. Anyway, we love dogs, my brother and I. We went to this person's house, a relative, and I remember my brother, he crouched down just um, because he wanted to just... I think, invite the dog over to come and see him. And the dog came running toward him, light speed, hit the end of his leash just before his mouth got to his face and just reeled back from the leash. I think that's kind of the picture that Coleman was trying to give us, that Satan has a, he roams around. Peter talks about Satan, the devil, being like a, a lion that roams around. Well, that picture of my brother seeing those snapping jaws in his face is kind of the picture you get in the, as the prince of this world tries to frustrate the saints and God's work in the world. When the, a few weeks ago, I guess it was, it was almost two weeks ago when Pastor Terry Norris, our new lead pastor, is coming, he came here and he introduced a third kingdom. We had the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the world, but Pastor Terry um, talked to us also about the kingdom of self. And I wanna, I wanna talk about that just for a minute too, because that's very important. Um, the kingdom of self is your little kingdom. 
It's the areas where you have say in your life. And your little kingdom sits at the intersection of those two other kingdoms. The kingdom of God, where God has final authority and has say over things, and the kingdom of this world, where Satan is alive and active. And somewhere in between there, you, I think, are trying to figure out how does my kingdom, my little kingdom, fit into this? The invitation from Jesus and the entire New Testament is to live the kind of life that flows out of allegiance to the kingdom of God. And that's a process, but that's the invitation. Bring your kingdom, your little world, into alignment with the kingdom of God. And so that's what Jesus is constantly doing in his parables. He's inviting people into a new way of living. He's asking them to submit their little kingdoms to his rule and to his reign and become citizens of the kingdom of God. Here are a couple of, um, of parables that give that example. Here's a very short one. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had, and bought it. And the teaching or the message in there is, it's worth abandoning everything to be part of the kingdom of God. Or take this other parable from Mark 4. Jesus said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall I use to describe it? I'll say it's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when it's planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. And the message, from seemingly insignificant beginnings, God's kingdom is going to grow and eventually spread throughout the whole area and the whole world. So he would use these stories as parables. This morning, I want to look at a parable from the Gospel of Luke. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. And I'll read the passage for us this morning as well. Since most of these were shared orally, they were spoken, if you don't, wanna, if you don't have a Bible or if you don't want to follow on, just close your eyes and listen to the story. It's quite short, but it, you'll notice it's really, really fascinating. Here's the story. Jesus told this story to those who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray, Jesus said. One was a Pharisee. The other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like the other people. Cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, O oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Isn't that a fascinating little story? 
I think it's so well done. The story is actually meant to instruct us about what it means to live in the kingdom of God. Now, it's true that if you think about it, it's a scathing criticism of religious people who think they're so great and are doing all the right things versus the liberating and refreshing reminder it is to those who are genuinely repentant before God. Now, I don't know if you've ever met any self-righteous, judgmental, religious people. <laughs> I know they may be rare, but let me assure you, <laughs> they exist. And I think this parable is a really good one to start off our series with because in a few minutes, we're gonna go before God and we're gonna pray and we're gonna examine our hearts and we're gonna take communion. Jesus knew that the heart, the very center of who we are, the heart in biblical language is the seat of our mind, our will, our emotions, it's everything. It integrates us all together. The very center of who we are, he knew that that was the place from which everything flowed. It wasn't the external stuff. It was the heart that was the most important. So think of that. Think of the heart as the very center of who you are and everything flowing out of that because that's the part that Jesus wants to get a hold of. That's the part he's constantly asking us to attend to. And in the parable I just read, the heart of the Pharisee is out of alignment. You know when you drive a car that's out of alignment? The heart of the Pharisee in this parable is out of alignment. He uses other people as his measuring stick. God, he says, I'm sure glad I'm not like other people. I do all the right religious things. He's proud, he's self-exalting, he's justified in his own eyes and by what he thinks he does. That's what makes him right before God. Now, if you read the Gospels, um, you should read them and think of who Jesus was most critical of. He was shockingly critical, in my opinion, of self-righteous, judgmental, religious people. Just watch that as you read through the Gospels. People who thought they knew better than everyone else, people who had these puffed up spiritual chests, who looked down their long, skinny religious noses at others. Those are the people Jesus was most critical of. And ironically, the person whose heart is tuned to God in this parable isn't the Pharisee, it's the tax collector. Now, tax collector, the tax collector in this story knows his inadequacies. He knows he's fallen short. He can't even lift his head. He's beating his chest. He shows genuine respect for God and repentance before God. And he asks if God would please show mercy on him. Unlike the Pharisee, the tax collector is humble, self-aware, very aware of his own inadequacies. And he realizes that he's reconciled to God only by God's grace and God's mercy. And that's in some ways why I think this parable is genius because Jesus takes two well-known people who are walking around, one from each end of the religious spectrum. The Pharisee on the one end would have been considered a high outstanding moral example. The tax collector on the other would have considered, been considered, um, a, they would have been despised generally, not well liked. They would have been seen as um, in cahoots with the Romans collecting taxes and they would have been to some degree hated or derided by the culture. And Jesus then takes everything and flips it on his head. The respected religious leader is on the out. He's the one who's condemned. And the humble tax collector ends up being the one justified. It's brilliant. And just I thought of, as we head towards communion, what are three things that we can take from this first simple parable of the series? 
So let me name three. The first one, I think, is this parable is a good reminder of how we are and we aren't reconciled with God. The work of God in us, the grace of God, not our own efforts, is what justifies us before God. John Calvin called that the great exchange. And Francis Schaeffer, who I used to read a lot when I first became a Christian and really, really loved, he, he, he said it this way, the only thing we have to do is to raise the empty hands of faith and receive the gift that God's given us, that free gift by faith alone. Nothing that we can do. We have to understand our own weaknesses, our own brokenness before God. We confess those things before God and we receive what only God can do for us. That's the message. And this is critical for Jesus. And it's surprising to the audience that's listening. What he's saying is that he doesn't see the religious heavyweights of the day, those people who think they're experts but are self-righteous and proud of themselves. He doesn't see them as the people who are modeling the right relationship we need to have with God. Notice the Pharisee slips into the place of privilege in the parable. He walks into the temple by himself, gets up nice and close, stands alone, while the tax collector stands away off. The tax collector, on the other hand, is the one in the parable who knows himself. He knows who he is and who he isn't. And he doesn't feel like he has a leg of his own to stand on. He claims no special status. He simply clings to God. He declares his dependence on God's love and God's mercy. And it's that person that's recognized in this story as a child of the king. It's a great reversal. The second thing that I think is important about this parable is it really emphasized the importance of humility in the kingdom of God. Humility was um, defined by someone as being dependent on God and compassionate toward others. I always found humility hard. Like, how do you become more humble, right? It's always a hard thing to understand, and um, it's kind of a slippery term because in the moment you're thinking you're to become more humble, you can actually quickly become proud of your humility. But think of humility just for today as somebody who, a person who's humble, is someone who declares their dependence on God and is compassionate toward others. I think that definition really works well in this passage here. There's lots packed into this little story about self-awareness, which I think is worthy of a whole other sermon, but thinking about humility, we can really easily deceive ourselves. We can forget very quickly how dependent we are on God. We can think, well, I'm not doing bad on the religious scorecard, am I? We can forget how to be kind and compassionate to others because it's easier not to be. We can forget the grace of God. We can just begin to take God's mercy and grace for granted. And that's why I think with a parable like this, it's really helpful to go back and do a heart check. Check your own heart. Am I dependent on God? Or am I doing this in my own strength? Am I compassionate toward others? Or am I a jerk, right? Like there's things you can, you can think through here. God isn't impressed in this parable by correct behaviors or feelings of moral superiority. The right acts, the right things without love and compassion actually are considered not righteous by God. So you can do the right things with the wrong heart and they're all gonna be considered wrong. I think that's an important warning to us. So in this parable, we see the need of a God who responds to, we see God responds to the needs of the humble, not the proud, those who declare their need for him and trust in his mercy. And then a final one, and this one really spoke to me. Um, 
It's a point where I really think I and we have to do some soul searching. This parable is a warning to the religious. Different people around Jesus when he spoke this parable would have heard it differently, depending on their background. And depending on what part of that continuum from Pharisee to tax collector they kind of saw themselves on. But for those who were excluded, ignored, or other, or condemned, Jesus would have felt some, uh, Jesus' words would have brought some hope. It's funny though, I, I think, I was um, thinking about this this morning, it's so easy for us to always align ourselves with the right side of things in the stories we hear. You know, so we think of ourselves, we can think of ourselves as the humble ones. This particular parable, I think, doesn't leave us off the hook at all. Because as religious people, we better be willing to locate ourselves wherever God finds us along this continuum. For those who didn't, uh, who were excluded or ignored, they would hear Jesus and say, you mean I can be included? I can be included among your people, Jesus? The door isn't shut? You would welcome me in? And the Pharisees, who already considered themselves part of the in-group, they would have found this infuriating. It would have threatened their religious powers. It would have minimized their status. After all, who was Jesus to speak for God in matters like this? It would have been a verbal slap in the face for a Pharisee. Individually, though, and as a church, we need to be willing to put the emphasis on the right things. It's easy, so easy as a church, to slip into legalism and judgmentalism and to just other groups of people around us. I'm glad I'm not like them or keep them at arm's length. We see ourselves eventually as better than them because of who we are and what we do. And I think that's always a threat to religious peoples. It's something, religious people, it's something we need to do. So I asked myself this morning, and as I was reading this parable this week, who do I better identify with in this parable? Am I more like the Pharisee or more like the tax collector? And I search myself. And I think if I feel conviction, I need to bring that to God during communion and ask him to set my heart right with him again. So those are three things that just come out of that parable. With all that fresh in our hearts and our minds, I wanna transition right into communion with a story right now. I heard an amazing story about a guy recently in Maryland. Um, his, name was, his name was Jay Spates. So we're gonna move towards communion with that stuff in our mind, but listen to this crazy story. For years, Jay wanted to know more about his family history. And when his family died, Jay was about 66, and he decided he was gonna look into his family's past. So he sent in a DNA sample to Ancestry, and they got back to him. And when the results came back, it turned out a large part of his DNA was from a little African country called Benin, the little African country of Benin. Now, the country of Benin was really well known during the slave trade because Benin had the largest port for shipping slaves. And in all of Africa, there were actually thousands and thousands of slaves shipped out of the port in Benin. Now, as Jay kept digging into his past, he eventually found out that he was related not just to people in Benin, but he actually had royalty in his blood, connecting to the royal leaders of Benin. And as um, that, for him, made his work even more fascinating. So months later, it just so happened that Jay got talking to a priest who was visiting the States from Benin, and they got discussing Jay's family history, and the priest recognized his ancestral name. And he said, that's a very significant name in our country. That has a connection to our reigning king, actually, in Benin. And this is where the story gets even crazier. 
In a surreal twist, this priest actually has a personal contact with the king of Benin. So he says to Jay, I know the king. And here's his phone number. It's crazy. I checked this. You can find it's been reported in reputable news outlets. I'm not making this stuff up. Although, you know, it's sometimes truth is crazier than fiction. He gets the king's phone number. He calls the king. And the king picks up and he starts talking to him. The, the Jay starts talking to him and the king hangs up on him. Now, apparently the king didn't speak English. That was the reason it turned out he hung up on him. But Jay decided, well, I'm going to keep cold calling the king. So he calls the king again and the king hands the phone to his wife, the queen, who speaks English. And they get talking and they start a conversation and they ask lots of questions. The queen's asking what would motivate you to be interested in your answer. She wants to know he's the real thing. He wants to know what's at the end of this uh, royal blood connection. So they get exchange a bunch of documents, information, and here's the clincher. Eventually, the queen of Benin, after doing a bunch of research, sends him a message on WhatsApp. Now, does anybody use WhatsApp? Raise your hand if you use WhatsApp. It's more used in my experience by international friends I have, but it's an app on iPhone and Android. But she sends him a message, the Queen of Benin, that says this, you are a descendant of King Deca, ninth king of Alada, who ruled from 1746 to 1765. We would be delighted to welcome you home, dear prince. Can you imagine? So Spates gets on a plane in the U.S. and he lands in Benin. And when he gets off the airport, the family pictures he had sent them has been blown up. And they're all over the airport. And people are singing and pictures are plastered everywhere and they're dancing and they're celebrating this newfound prince. And he's in shock. And over the next number of days, Spates given three royal crowns, holy robes, and he's welcomed back into the Alada kingdom. He was taught then, according to his customs, how to begin to live his new identity as prince of Benin in the Alada kingdom. Now, I can't even imagine personally, it kind of almost moves me to tears to think of what it might have been like for him to stand on the shores of Benin and look across the ocean and think how many of my relatives were shipped out of here to foreign countries. And now I'm standing, no longer as a a son of a slave, but I'm standing as the son of a king on the shores of Benin. It's remarkable. The communion table, I think, when you think about it, the communion table really is, in the end, a royal table. And let me tell you what I mean. When you're born... When you are reconciled, when you're born again, when you're reconciled with God, when you're born from above, you actually become a son or a daughter of the king, which is incredible. And this guy who thought he was the son of slaves turns out to be a prince. And now he has to live out of that newfound identity. You're told this morning, you've been told, you need to be reminded, your sons and daughters of the king. And you need to live into that new identity that he's given you. Because when we're reconciled to God, it's as if we become royalty, the scripture says. The challenge for us, I think, is to live into that new identity, to live as a child of the king, to bring our little kingdom into alignment with the bigger kingdom of God.
2 Corinthians 6.18 says this, God speaking, I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The communion table was given to us so that we could gather on a regular basis to remember. To remember, we're told, what Jesus did for us. To remember our identity as sons and daughters of the King and to live in the kingdom of God. So today, as we go to the communion table, here's what I'd like you to do. Declare your dependence on God and invite God to help you to be that kind and compassionate person who lives in the kingdom of God. So if you've got your, on the way in, you probably, uh, you hope you didn't sit on it, but you have these little thimble-sized cups of juice. What I'd like you to do is, I'd like, the band can come on up now, but what we're gonna do is we're gonna take communion together. And if you're someone who's entered God, God's royal family, you're invi- invited this morning to, to take communion. It's hard to get that top layer off, I'm just saying. It's got a tiny little piece of cellophane and I, I took me about 30 seconds to grab it when I did communion with the band before. Anyway, we're gonna take it together at the end. I want you to think about your identity this morning as the song plays. Think about who you are. You're a son or a daughter of the king. And I want you to take a moment to confess those things that get in the way of your relationship with God. We wanna be people that are more like the tax collector, humble people, people who are willing to admit their weaknesses, know they're dependent on God, and be kind to others around us. So that's what we're gonna do. So uh, they're gonna play a couple of um, stanzas or verses, and then we're going to take communion together. You give some time for self-reflection before that. If you haven't already, let's take the cup together and the bread, remembering the sacrifice Jesus made for us and giving thanks to him to be part of this royal feast this morning.